the weekly podcast from the First Church of Christ in East Palestine, Ohio. We're glad you've decided to join us, and we hope you enjoy this week's message. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we're so blessed to be in your house today, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here to worship you, Lord. We're so blessed. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us all here and want to thank you for giving us this opportunity to worship you. I want to thank you for the beautiful weather outside. Even though it's raining, we need the rain. Lord, I want to th- please bless this service, Lord, and those who bring it to you. In your name I pray, amen. The title of this communion is Battlefield Communion by Stuart Powell. Early in World War I, the British Army made an amphibious landing in Sulva Bay in what is now Western Turkey. The invasion was part of an August offensive in 1915, the final attempt to break a deadlock in the Battle of Gallipoli. There are numerous descriptions of the Allied forces landing in their battle against German and Ottoman defenders. Among those who landed was a soldier named William Henry Littlejohn. Sergeant Littlejohn survived the landing, the months of long stalemate, and the Allies' withdrawal in December of 1915, but he did not survive the war. The company sergeant major of the Middlesex Regiment was killed by a German sniper in the Battle of Arras in France on April 10, 1917. What did survive the war was Littlejohn's account of a sacred moment on the battle-scarred shoreline of that bay from home in August of 1915. He wrote a three stanza poem about a celebration of communion led by a chaplain on the beach of Suvla Bay. The memory of that battlefield time of worship began with a contrast between the visible and invisible realities present that day. Behold a table spread, a battered corn beef box, a length of twine, an altar rail of twigs and shreds of string, For the unseen divine, uncomprehended thing, a hallowed space amid the holy dead. In that moment, little John and his fellow soldiers stepped away from the war to remember the victory of Jesus' sacrifice. The crude setting did not rob little John's view of Jesus' compassion. While he wrote about the table from a soldier's perspective, he saw the spiritual eyes, the power brought to life, and the elements on that makeshift table. Consider Jesus' invitation to remember his sacrifice by partaking of the loaf and the cup. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus called to remember made no exception for ugly circumstances or makeshift tables. He did not require an ornate setting or a quiet gathering place. 
Jesus wanted his disciples to focus on the memory behind the bread, an innocent body sacrificed for our sins. He wanted each follower to relive the painful, the painful price of his lifeblood poured out to establish the new covenant of God's forgiveness. As we partake today, let Sergeant Littlejohn's poem rekindle in you this truth. When our battles are the worst, we soldiers of the cross need to remember what Jesus did for us the most. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to come around your table and worship you. Let us remember your sacrifice and let it be an example for all of us. Lord, as we partake of these emblems, we ask that you are with each one of us. In your name I pray, amen. Good morning, folks. Please take an opportunity to look at the announcements in the bulletin. Uh, a few things coming up, so please take note of those. We certainly would love to have you join us on Wednesday nights. And on Wednesday night, uh, we, through January and February, have soup and sandwich before we have Bible study. And we just have a, a good time together and encourage you to join us for soup and sandwich. Uh, if you notice the menu this week, chicken, sweet, potato, chowder, chili, tomato soup, uh, grilled cheese sandwiches, a salad. We, we have a good meal, and then we have Bible study for the kids downstairs and the adults upstairs. So we encourage you to join us uh, in that. Please look over uh, the other announcements if you would, and especially if you would look over the prayer request and uh, remember these people in your prayers. And if you get a chance to send a card, that's so helpful to many people to just let them know that you're praying for them and thinking of them. So if you look over that list, remember them if, with your prayers and cards. So let's take a moment to God, go to God in silent prayer now. Amen. Today is our last sermon in our series on Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the series. It's just a short book, only four chapters long, but in it we meet some very interesting people and we see how God is working in their lives and how God carries out his purpose. And we see some wonderful examples here for us. We see that life isn't always easy and at times we might even tend to turn, turn a little bitter toward God, but that can change when we understand that he really blesses us every day of our life. So Ruth is an interesting book. Last week we saw Ruth proposing to Boaz very unusual for a, a woman to be proposing to a man. Uh, back then, it was almost unheard of. It's not even that common today. But back in that day, almost unheard of. Uh, he, uh, and she proposes to Boaz. And Boaz says, yes, yes, a thousand times yes. But there's a problem. You see, Boaz is a, a guardian redeemer uh, to uh, Ruth. And he has a right to marry her. But he's not the closest relative. There's another person who is related to Ruth who's a little closer to Ruth and Naomi than Boaz. And he has first choice. If he wants to marry Ruth, he has the first choice to do that. So uh, Boaz decides to have a conversation with this relative. He says, yes to uh, Ruth, I want to marry you, but we got to make sure that it's legal. So he decides to have this conversation with this closer uh, redeemer here. So in chapter 4, we see Boaz going to the city gate. Now he goes there because that's where official business is carried out. And evidently, this kinsman redeemer, he also goes to the city gate. Boaz is going to meet them 
there. He's going to calm over. Uh, I, I don't think it's an accident. I think Boaz knew this man went to the city gate. He knew he was, go he was going to be there. He's waiting for him. And, and what gives me that indication is Boaz has 10 elders there with him. Now, basically, having 10 elders there, that was like a quorum to do a, a, have a business meeting. He was, he's saying, we have enough guys to take care of business here. We can handle this uh, transaction between Ruth and this kinsman redeemer, and between this guy and me. We have enough guys to do that. So uh, uh, he's there uh, at, at the gate, and uh, Boaz says, sees this fella, and he says, hey, hey, come on over here. Uh, I, need, I need to talk to you. Uh, we need to talk about a family situation. And Boaz goes on and he, and he tells uh, this fella uh, about Naomi coming back from Moab and bringing Ruth with him, with her, and, and that Naomi has this piece of land that's up for sale. Uh, it's Elimelech's land, or her husband who has passed away. This land is up for sale. Now, here's the deal, he says to this guy. You're a kinsman redeemer, and, and you have a chance to buy this land. I'm also a kinsman redeemer. I, I can buy the land. But you're the closest relative, so you have first choice. Now, if you buy the land, that's fine. But if you decide not to buy the land, I'm here today because I want to buy the land. So you make the choice. Are you going to take the land or not take the land? Now, what's very interesting here is this fellow doesn't ask anything about the land. He just says, yes, I'll redeem it. Just as soon as Boaz offers it, yes, I'll, I'll redeem it. He, he doesn't say, let me think it over. He doesn't say, let me, let me go talk with this over with my family. He, he doesn't say, you know what, I need to check my finances. I need to get some advice from my lawyer. He doesn't even ask how much it's going to cost to buy the land. He doesn't ask what the house is like. Does it need repairs? Is it falling apart? He doesn't say, is the land farmable? Or, or, or is it filled with rocks? He doesn't ask any of those things. He just says, yes, I'll redeem it. So that certainly gives you the idea that he knew something about this land before Boaz said anything. He knew what it looked like. He knew it was valuable and farmable. So he says in front of all the elders, these ten guys sitting there, I'll redeem it. I'll do my duty as a kinsman redeemer. I'll buy the land. So he, he, he thinks he, he's getting a win-win situation here. He's looking good in, in front of these leaders because he's fulfilling a responsibility. And at the same time, he's getting valuable land. And Boaz says, okay, that's what you want to do? Okay. And I, in my mind, I just picture Boaz kind of slapping the guy in the knee and saying, great, I'm glad you're going to do this. But you have to understand that when you get this land, you also get Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess from the land of Moab. You know those people who don't like us, our enemies? Uh, she's a Moabitess. You get her. You're going to have to marry her because uh, uh, she did not have any sons to her husband. So you get Ruth. Along with Ruth, you get Naomi, a bitter, cranky old woman. It's a package deal. You see, you get Naomi and you get Ruth. So good, you, you, you want to do this? You want to get this Moabitess into your house, have children by her, have this cranky old lady living with you? Let's sign on the dotted line. Pretty clever what he does. And the guy says, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. I don't think I want to do this. If I do this, you see, I could endanger my own estate. Now, what did he mean by that? 
Well, as guardian redeemer, he had the right to purchase the land, but, but because Ruth did not have any children to her husband, he, it was his responsibility to help her bear a son. Now, we don't know anything about this man. We're not even told what the man's name was. I don't know how big his family was. I don't know how many kids he had. But the fact that he says he could put his estate in danger gives me the idea that he might only had daughters. You see, if you only had daughters, and if he married Ruth and had a son by Ruth, that son would inherit everything. The daughters do not inherit. The son would inherit everything. So he's thinking, do I not want my daughters to get any of my property? Do I want this Moabitess son to get my property? Now, even if he had a son, that son would have to split 50-50 the estate with Ruth's son. And and maybe he had two sons, but whatever, they're not only going to get Ruth's property, they're also going to get a percentage of his property. And he doesn't want to do that with this Moabitess and this cranky old lady. So he says, no. I've changed my mind. I'm not going to do this. So Boaz says, uh, okay, if you're not going to redeem it, her, I'll redeem her. So let's see what happens. Um, now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing a transaction in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed a sandal. Now remember, we talked last week, maybe, uh, was it last week? Yeah, uh, about how uh, Ruth laid at the uncovered feet of Boaz, and, and, and she was thinking of this situation, this transaction, and he, was, he thought about this too, and basically she lays at his feet and proposes, and, 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 and she's saying, this is done privately. Uh, I'm here at your feet. This is a transaction between you and me. If you say no, nobody's going to know it. This is not a public transaction at all. It's up to you, but it's private. You can say yes, you can say no. Now here we have this taking place, and it's a public transaction. The man takes off a sandal, meaning that he's not going to step forward and take on his responsibility as kinsman redeemer. Now, he doesn't have to. Because he is... He is not the brother of Ruth's dead husband. He doesn't have, if, if he was the brother, he'd be responsible to marry that person. But he's not, he doesn't have to. But he has first dibs. And he has to say, I'm not going to no- do it so Bo- uh, Boaz can do it. So it's no longer a private matter. It's a public matter before all these elders. He's making a transition, uh, transaction here. He's saying, legally, I'm, I'm going to take this step. Now, verse 9 says, so... Uh, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi, I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among the family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. So you see, uh, Boaz has planned this whole thing out. He, he, he knew what he was doing. And when Boaz said this, that he was going to take root, this Moabitess, uh, I don't think he said it like Eeyore. Remember Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh? Always sad. I don't think Boaz said, well, this guy didn't do his duty. Somebody has to step up. Someone has to do it. I guess it'll be me. 
I don't think he said it like that. He was excited. He was joyful. He did all he could to keep in his laughter. Everything turned out the way he wanted to. Now notice what the elders say to him. Then the elders and all the people of the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring of the Lord, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So what the elders are doing here is they are blessing Boaz. They say, may the women coming into your home be like Rachel and Leah. The woman coming into your home, Ruth, may she be like Rachel and Leah. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, Rachel and Leah, they were the start of the Israelite nation. And between the two, they had 13 children. So he's saying, may you have a lot of kids. And, and then they say, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And when they're saying that, they, they're saying, may Ruth, who is a foreigner, be like Tamar, who was also a foreigner. And Tamar gave birth to Perez, a son of Judah. Tamar gave birth to those who were known as the Bethlehemites. The Bethlehemites. Perez was Boaz's great, 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 great grandfather. So what they're basically saying to Boaz is, may you and Ruth have children and increase our people. So everyone's happy. Everyone's excited for Ruth and Boaz. So the Bible tells us they were married and they had a son. It seemed like they had a son quickly. She could not have a son to Malon, but now she marries this older man. And right away, they have a son. They name him Obed, which is short for Obadiah, meaning the servant of the Lord. And we learn a little bit about the family line in verse 21 and 22. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, if we did not have the events that happened in the book of Ruth, we would not have King David. Ruth is uh, King David's great-grandmother. So you see God working in the background here to bring his son into the world. And he's bringing his son into the world through a godly line. Now i got to say this. When you look at the genealogy of Jesus, there are a lot of people in that genealogy who were not all that godly. They did some bad things. Even David, who, who slept with Bathsheba and then killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So there were some people in the lineage of Jesus who did bad things. And we look at his lineage and we understand no matter what we have done in our life, no matter what we have done in our life, God can forgive us. Jesus had bad apples in, uh, in his genealogy. But not Ruth and not Boaz. Uh, these were not bad apples. These were two people of unquestionable character and faith. So let's go to the New Testament just for a moment and look a little bit about Jesus' genealogy. Matthew chapter 1 says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So chapter 1, we, and this is a good, just starting the New Testament uh, we're waiting for the Messiah to come, so the New Testament opens with the genealogy showing us that the, this one born has the right to be the Messiah. He has the right lineage. 
And we read a little bit about Jesus here in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. These were in Jesus' genealogy. We've already, already heard about Tamar and Perez back in the book of Ruth. Tamar is a foreigner. This is the first foreigner mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. And then we read in, in verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now Rahab is another foreigner. We don't have too many women mentioned. The only two mentioned so far are foreigners. You remember the story of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. She lived in Jericho. When the Israelites came in to spy on the city because they were going to attack it, Rahab hid the spies from the, the authorities. She saved their lives. And because of that, she was saved when the Israelites attacked Jericho. And she became a follower of Jesus, and she is the mother of Boaz. Uh, and then we read Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now again, we see a woman mentioned. Now, women are mentioned many times in the book, uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. Only five altogether. Uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, all these foreigners are mentioned at the start. And then we have uh, Bathsheba mentioned, but she's not mentioned by name. She's called Uriah's wife because God wants to us to remember, wanted Jews to remember what happened there. Uh, David killed Uriah uh, because he got Bathsheba pregnant. So, and then the next one mentioned is Mary. And that's all the women we have mentioned in uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, three of them. Three of them are foreigners. And Ruth is the only one who has unquestionable character. Ruth is the only one that we have a book in the Bible written about. Ruth is mentioned here in the genealogy of Jesus. When you think about it, it's interesting. Sarah's not mentioned, Abraham's wife. Sarah was the one who gave birth to Isaac. The Jewish nation came from Sarah and Abraham. Sarah's not mentioned. Jacob's wives are not mentioned. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is not mentioned. But these three foreign women are mentioned. And of course, that, that reminds us uh, that God is out to save everyone, not just the Jews, but he's out to save everyone. And, and I think as the, the Jews read this at the first century, as they read Jesus' genealogy and they saw these foreigners in it, it must have been a shock to them. But God's purpose of sending Jesus in the world is not just to save the Jewish nation, but to save everyone. Ruth was blessed. She was blessed because of her willingness to follow God, to be obedient to God and faithful to Naomi and faithful to Boaz. And God blessed her to be the great-grandmother of David and in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So God blessed Ruth over and over and over again. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, May he become famous throughout Israel. And of course, he's talking about Boaz there. Boaz did become famous throughout Israel. Then in verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better than seven sons, has given birth. Now, that's an astonishing statement that is made there. Your daughter-in-law, who is better than seven sons. The Jewish women wanted to have sons. Why? 
Well, for one reason, because Christ was going to come from the, the Jewish people. And it, it's possible that they would give birth to the Christ. So they wanted to have sons. But also because the sons were the ones who can inherit property. The sons were the ones who could work. Women basically did not have jobs back then. Uh, so if, if they did not have any sons, who's going to take care of them in their old age? Who's going to provide for them? So the Jewish women wanted to have sons. So this statement, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons, is an amazing statement. The women are calling Naomi's attention, the blessing that Ruth has been to her. And we see how good Ruth has been to her mother-in-law. She said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And except for chapter 1, when Naomi tells Ruth, you go back to your parents, and she says no, and she clings on to Naomi. Except for that, Ruth always does everything Naomi asks her to do. Is that true of your daughter-in-law? Does she do everything you, know, you ask her to do? Is that true of your daughter's? Naomi did, uh, Ruth did everything Naomi asked her to do. Uh, and then she went and, and, and worked in the field, a hard thing to do, worked from morning to night to bring food in for Naomi. Uh, she told Naomi she was in Boaz's field gleaning, and Naomi said, listen, whatever he tells you to do, you do. Uh, when the harvest is over, Naomi says to Ruth, uh, it, it's time uh, that you get married. You propose to Boaz. A very unusual thing for a woman to propose to a man. But Ruth doesn't argue with Naomi about it. In fact, in, in chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Ruth says, I will do whatever you ask. She's an amazing woman. And basically, these women, these Jewish women are saying to Naomi, if we had a choice, we could have seven sons. Or we could have a daughter-in-law like Ruth. We would choose Ruth every time. And Naomi, who came to Bethlehem bitter and angry with God, is beginning to realize that God has blessed her. Verse 16 says that Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Naomi took care of Ruth and Boaz's boy like it was her boy. It was her grandson. Now here's the thing. Throughout the book of Ruth, we see God's invisible hand. Throughout the book of Ruth, we see God working behind the scenes. It wasn't an accident that Ruth married Malon. I mean, they're in Moab. How, how did he come in contact with Ruth? Where did he meet her? Was it the teenage hangout, you know? I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting to find out how they got connected. But I don't believe at all it was an accident or a coincidence that he married this woman. Of all the pagan women, the ones who were worshiping the false gods there, he chose this one and he married her. And because of Naomi and her faithfulness to God, uh, Ruth also then became a Christian. It wasn't a coincidence that Ruth gleans in Boaz's field. It wasn't a coincidence that they met and got married. It wasn't a coincidence that Ruth went, that Naomi went from being bitter to better. God's hand was in that. God's hand wanted, God, God wanted Ruth and Boaz, you see, to be in the lineage 
of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that it's not easy for us to see God working in our lives as we look through the windshield. But when we look through the rearview mirror, we can say, oh yeah, now I see what he was doing. Now I see how he was working. And, and, and you see God working in the lives of people throughout the Bible to accomplish his purpose, working behind the scenes. You see it in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, God is not even mentioned. You never see the word God in the book of Esther. But God is everywhere in the book of Esther, working behind the scenes through Esther to save the nation of Israel from destruction. We see God working behind the scenes in the, in the life of Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, torn away from his family. When he gets down to Egypt, he ends up being working in Potiphar's household. And as he works there, he works himself up from the lowest servant to the highest servant in charge of all the other servants. And then Potiphar's wife lies about him. She tries to seduce him, and he, 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 he will not let that happen. And because he is godly, he is thrown into jail. And he's in jail for two years. And you're wondering, where's God in all this? And yet the Bible tells us over and over and over again in the book of Genesis, God was with Joseph. Even when he's in jail, God is with Joseph. Because it's in jail that he meets some people and he interprets dreams and he ends up going to Pharaoh and interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And through all that, he becomes second in charge of all of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. This little Jewish boy from Canaan who was sold into slavery, put into prison, becomes second in charge of all of Egypt. And God's hand is behind all that. Because now since he's second in charge of all Egypt, when he's able to bring his family, which is basically 70 people, able to bring them down to Egypt during a time of famine and save their lives. And they stay in Egypt. Now remember back in the book of Genesis, God promises to Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Well, 70 people is hardly a great nation. But during their stay in Egypt, they become a great nation. Even though they end up in slavery for a while, they become a great nation. And when Moses takes them out of Egypt, they come out of Egypt with millions of people. God, his invisible hand, working in the background to accomplish his purpose. And that is what we see in the book of Ruth. And you need to understand that God is working in your life. He's working in the background. Again, you might not see it as you look through the windshield, but you look through that rearview mirror. God is working in your life to accomplish his purpose. And he is always working for our good. The Bible reminds us, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So if you're going through a difficult time right now, you just hold on. God is working in your life, and he's working in your life for the good. And someday you'll look in the rearview mirror. And maybe that someday won't be to heaven. But someday you'll look in the rearview mirror and say, oh yeah, I see God's hand. I see God's hand in that. So I hope that you've enjoyed our study through the book of Ruth. Uh, maybe you've learned some things that you didn't know just by reading through it. Uh, it's a very interesting book and an important book. And Ruth and Boaz set wonderful examples for us. The book reminds us that God sent a redeemer into the world, Jesus Christ. He's come to redeem us from our sins. He's our guardian redeemer. And many of you, most of you here today, have accepted him as your guardian redeemer. 
But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You haven't made that decision to accept Christ yet. The Bible says to become a Christian, we need to have faith that leads us to repent of our sins, confess Christ, and be baptized into him. Maybe you haven't made that decision yet. But did you ever think it might have been God's invisible hand, God working in the background, that brought you here this morning so you could make that decision? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're going to uh, sing an invitation hymn. And as we do, if you come forward, uh, we can take your confession and we can baptize you into Christ and Jesus this morning. Maybe that's God working behind the scenes. Let's stand as we sing together. Thanks for listening. If you would like to join us in person, we meet on Sundays at 845 and 11 a.m. and on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. Have a great week.